good morning, everyone. Uh, for those of you uh, who don't know me, uh, my name's Andrew. If you're new with us, I just want to once again welcome you and thank you for joining us. Uh, for those of you who are expecting Chris up here today, uh, welcome to the club. I also was expecting Chris up here today. <laughs> uh, he was sick this week and was sure he was going to be better by Sunday. And yesterday morning at like 8 in the morning, he was like, dude, I am not going to make it tomorrow. Do you think you can step in? <laughs> Uh, if you've ever tried to pull together a sermon in a short amount of time, it is not a fun experience, but uh, we're going to see how it goes. He sent me his notes, so I had uh, lots to work with. So all that being said, if, morning, if this morning is a total flop, uh, you can write your comments to Chris at westvillagechurch.com. If it's awesome, uh, you know where to find me. So... <laughs> Um, yeah, first of all, again, if you're new with us, I just want to take a quick moment and just let you know where we've been. Uh, we've been walking through a book of the Bible called the book of Ephesians, which isn't actually a book, it's a letter. Uh, written by a man in the Apostle Paul to several churches in the city of Ephesus and the surrounding communities, in which he's really trying to help them unpack what it means to be the church in the midst of a culture uh, of a culture that is very hostile to the idea of Jesus, uh, and, and being a church in the midst of a culture that seems to be very hostile to Jesus. We thought it was probably poignant for us to get into this book and continue to learn what it looks like for us to be that countercultural community. Uh, and as we've been going through, we've come to these different sections where Paul is talking about who God is and what he's done. And now we find ourselves in a section where he's starting to unpack what it actually looks like for us to live out this life of Christ together uh, in these different areas of life. And in particular, uh, we've come to a point where he's starting to talk a little bit about marriage. Um, and by association, he has things to say about uh, gender and sexuality as well. And given that we live in the midst of a culture that is having a big conversation about these things, we thought it was probably important for us to double down a little bit and walk through this in a little bit more detail. So we're actually spending four weeks on the same passage. Last week, Chris started us off um, with a kind of general overview on God's vision for marriage. Uh, this week, we're going to talk a little bit more specifically about gender, uh, and in particular, how it relates to what it means to be a man in the biblical sense. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about what it looks like to see gender played out as a, a woman in a biblical sense. And then the third, uh, fourth week, we're going to talk a little bit about God's vision for sexuality. Um, and uh, we want this to be, we, we recognize that this is a, a really complex conversation. Four weeks is not nearly enough time to really dig in. Um, and so we also want to give you a chance to continue to give feedback and ask questions. And so over the course of the sermon, you're going to see uh, a number on the screen and please just uh, shoot your, your questions there. Um, really quick, last week we did get one really big question a few times, which was, did Chris unclog the sink? <laughs> I am happy to, to inform you that indeed he did. The sink was unclogged. So when you see him next time, say, way to go, buddy. Um, uh, one other thing I just want to let you know, um, again, this is, this is a very big issue. Uh, issue isn't even the right word, a very big topic. Uh, we really do want our church to continue to learn what it looks like um, to live, in particular, the relationship of marriage in light of who Jesus is. Um, we are not able to talk about it in as much detail as we would like in this setting, but there is a phenomenal book by Tim and Kathy Keller. Uh, you can buy it in the bookstore. We discounted it for this month just so it's easily accessible. Um, so it's only 10 bucks. And it is, uh, when, I, when Shannon and I got married, I emailed like all the pastors that I like, really respect and said, hey, if you were to recommend one book to help prepare someone for marriage, what would it be? And overwhelmingly, this was the book. And having read it myself, used it in many uh, ways, 
least for premarital counseling, I can uh, say that if you are married, if you want to be married, if you're single and you think marriage might be a good thing in general, read the book. It is actually super, super helpful uh, and will continue to con help you understand what it looks like to enter into that relationship um, through uh, the, the lens of Jesus being Lord. Um, the second thing I want to kind of just say before we jump into it today is I recognize that we're going to be talking about topics that, um, that are kind of like hot-button topics in our culture, uh, and, and it can be really easy for um, you to kind of come in and me to come in and just be like, man, you know, God says one thing, the world's saying a different thing, let's just like lob grenades at the world, and I can just be like, yeah, look at how bad it is, look at how dumb everyone is out there, and you can be like, amen, pastor, preacher, brother, and I'm, you know, and uh, that's not our heart. Uh, the, the, our, our heart is not to, you know, um, come up here and give some kind of right-leaning uh, ideology about gender uh, and throw out pot shots at the culture. Um, but at the same time, we do recognize that this is a relevant issue and that the Bible actually has real things to say about this. And it is important for us as followers of Jesus to actually listen to what he has for us. And so uh, with that being said, one of the things that I want to just continue to remind us of is that we really believe that this is not something that God is doing to us to try and make life harder or more difficult or more oppressive, but that Jesus really does want us to experience joy and flourishing, and his way is the best way to do that. Uh, last week, Chris shared a, a, a thought that came from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, and I'll just uh, paraphrase it for you, but essentially what he says is, is God is like an inventor, and, and he is the one who has like, created the machine, and he knows exactly how the machine should work for it to maximize its potential. Well, in that picture, we are the machine. God has made us. He has crafted us, and he knows exactly how we are to live, and so his desire for us is that we live in such a way that we function the way he's designed us to so that in that we will experience the maximum amount of joy and flourishing. And that really is our heart. And so as you hear this, there are going to be times and some of you might say, I don't know about this. I think what you're saying seems off or wrong. And let me just continue to remind you track with us, continue, share those questions. Like by no means am I saying like, take everything I say at face value. Like it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to, to push back. But what I do want to invite us to is continue to recognize that Jesus is Lord and that his desire for us is one in which we experience the joy that can only come by submitting ourselves to him. Uh, with that being said, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, we got some free ones uh, right over there. You can grab the, our free gift to you. Of course, you can always download one from the uh, App Store on your phone. Uh, but we're going to jump in right into verse 21 of chapter 5 of the book of Ephesians, and I'm going to go down to 33. So Paul begins by saying this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Uh, this is just a quick aside, but I, I want us to see that what everything else, uh, whatever else Paul says here, it comes out of this first root understanding that there is a mutual submission to one another, and that comes from first and foremost a submission to Jesus. He's saying Jesus is Lord, so out of reverence for Christ, out of the fact that you are respecting him as Lord, he's the one who gets to call the shots in your life, now you must relate to each other in a way that is putting the other first. And then he goes on and says this, Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Um, on a totally different note, if you try and get your wife to memorize that verse, it does not fly. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits, um, sorry, <clears throat> now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit yourself to your hu- her, their husbands in everything. And husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. I want to give you a bit of a roadmap of where we're going to go today. I want to frame this conversation up uh, as we look at this passage uh, around three questions. Three questions that I think we need to answer. So so the first question that we're going to answer is, what is gender? Uh, The second question that we're going to answer is, why does the Bible only prescribe two genders, and why does it seem to have a clear distinction between the two? And then the third question we're going to answer is, what is the biblical picture of manhood or maleness? So let's start with that first question. What is gender? Now, the world's going to have lots of different ideas of gender. Uh, and, and I'll just say this off the top end. Um, when we're talking about gender here, I don't mean like gender expression. And so uh, that, that would be like the sense of like, okay, um, in our culture, it is typical for women uh, to be the only ones who really wear like dresses. But if you go to Scotland... Uh, there's going to be dudes wearing some kilts, which are kind of like skirts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I worked at a distillery when we first moved to Victoria, and I wore a kilt, and it did not make me less of a man. I'm just going to put it out there. Uh, Here's the reality. When we talk about the ways that a particular culture expresses gender, that is fluid. You're not going to necessarily see the same thing play out in every culture. Some cultures will have ways that women dress and ways that men dress. Some cultures will have roles that are predominantly kind of fulfilled by men and roles that are predominantly filled by women. Uh, there's going to be some overlap because of the way God's created us. But that's, that's not what we're talking about. When we're talking about when we say genders, we're talking about the essence of which God has created men and women Differently, And so a biblical definition of gender would be that gender, biblically speaking, is the distinction between male and female as preordained by God in the created order. So you're probably asking, well, where are you coming up with that? Well, let's just quickly take a look at the text. So Paul is talking to husbands and wives, and he seems to be saying, as we look at the text, that they are to interact with each other in different ways. Husbands are supposed to interact with their wife in one way. Wives are supposed to interact with their husband in another way. Um, and we see that throughout, right? Husbands love your wives. Wives respect your husband. There's a, there's a way in which Jesus, uh, Jesus, through Paul, is calling husbands to love their wives and wives to love their husbands. But the wording he uses, the language he uses, is specific to the type of gender that they are. There's a sense that they have different roles and different ways of relating to one another. Um, And we see that throughout scripture. Now, uh, I want to just quickly say a few things here because I I recognize that um, there's going to be some objections here. Uh, There are people who are going to say, well, Andrew, 
aren't you just kind of looking at something that is unique to a particular cultural context and unique to a particular time and particular space and then try to impose it now on 2023? Like that was writing to like an archaic time when men and women had these different roles and like, shouldn't we actually look at the way that we function today? And, and I, I actually think that that's a valid question to ask. And, and just as an aside, if you are reading the Bible, you should be asking that question. You should be saying, what is the cultural context in which this is written? Because that matters. It matters for us to understand what the cultural context is. But, but here's the issue. The issue is that Paul is actually not rooting, nor does he root in any other passage, his arguments on this based on the cultural context. He actually roots all of it on the creation account. If you go to 1 Timothy chapter 2 or 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when he's talking specifically about the way that men and women relate in different settings, he always goes back and he roots it in God's creation. And even here we see that implicitly and very explicitly in verse chapter, um, chapter uh, 5, verse 31, where he says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife. What's he doing? He's saying, if you want to understand how marriage is supposed to work, go back and read the creation account. Read how God made it to be. So let's actually go do that. Genesis chapter 1, very first page of the Bible. This is what it says when God creates humankind. Chapter 1, verse 27. So God created mankind in his image. All of humanity is built in the image of God. In the image of God, he created them. And actually, that's a uh, kind of a translation decision from the NIV, but the literal translation would be him. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So what we see here quite clearly is that the way that God has designed Humanity from the very beginning is a binary, male and female. Now, there are some implications for this, and I think they're important for us to wrestle through. Uh, the first implication is that if we believe that God's word is true, that it, it really does not matter what is happening in the world around us, what governments say, what colleges say, what universities say, what schools say, there can only ever be two genders, male and female. This is the way that God has created the world. But I, I want to nuance that a little bit and, and say this. I, I do not want to in any way negate the reality that humans have been broken because of sin. And I think this is really important for us. And for many people... This isn't an abstract theological issue. This is a very real struggle in their lives. People experience either um, like a, a corruption biologically, like a, a mutation in their body biologically in which they're born with like an extra chromosome, which makes things very confusing biologically, where they're, you know, biologically, uh, you can't actually tell what sex they are. Um, and it is a very real reality that many people experience where they look at themselves and what they feel doesn't correspond to what they experience as their gender, as their sex. Gender dysphoria is a real thing. And if you're coming here and you're saying, well, we need to have compassion on people who are experiencing this, I would say, yes, 100%. That is the right attitude to have. I just want you 
to imagine with me what it would feel like for you to wake up and look at yourself and feel so uncomfortable in who you are. Like, what would that do to your heart? What would that do to your soul? What would that do to your psyche? It would be devastating. I recently got to listen to um, a podcast uh, interview between Jordan Peterson, who's a kind of a <coughs> psychologist slash now kind of a little bit of a uh, kind of a personality, a, kind of a right-leaning personality. Uh, and he, he interviewed a, a gal by the name of Chloe Cole, um, who had gone through a gender transition process and then a detransition process. And uh, I mean, there's lots of really uh, interesting things to, to gain from that interview. But the thing that, that struck me is just as she was describing what her life was like that kind of caused her to enter into this process in the first place, it sounded, it sounded horrific. It sounded deeply troubling and deeply painful. And these are not abstract uh, questions for people. These are real questions that they have to wrestle with. And we as a church need to be a place in which people can actually wrestle with those questions and we can come alongside them and love and care for them with compassion. Even a couple of months ago, uh, I was sitting in a coaching meeting uh, with Nathan and Carrie and Dave and Brianna, my wife Shannon, we were doing a missional community leader coaching meeting and in the middle of the meeting, uh, Nathan Carey got a text that a friend of theirs that they've known for many years, Chris and Kelly know as well, um, who had been struggling with this particular issue with gender dysphoria, uh, ended up taking her own life. And the church needs to be a place where people who are deeply wrestling with this question can do it with a loving community around them who is going to care for them deeply. And so again, I want us to, to hold these things in tension. God does have a real picture of how he's created the world. And sin has created space where that picture gets distorted in the lives of individual people. And we as a church need to be a place where people can find health and healing in the midst of that struggle. The second question that we are going to ask is why does God only have two genders in the Bible, and why is there a clear distinction? <clears throat> so again, I want to invite us to go back to Genesis, and I want to look at Genesis chapter 2, and I just pull out here Genesis chapter 2, 18, because I think this will help us understand this a little bit more. So in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18, uh, God, uh, in his word, writes, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Okay, why is that significant? If you've gone through the book of Genesis, what you're going to see is that God creates things, and after everything, he says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then he comes to this point, and this is the first time when God says, not good. And he's not looking at Adam and saying, not good. He's looking at Adam's aloneness, and he's saying, not good. Up to this point, as we look, everything has a corresponding pair. We have the, the sea and the land. We have <clears throat> this, like the day and the night. We have you know, the seed and the plants. We have you know, the corresponding pairs for the animals. But he comes to Adam, and he does not have a corresponding pair. There is a sense of incompleteness that we're supposed to see here, that there is something missing here for Adam to fully manifest who he's supposed to be as a human. 
on a totally kind of uh, like random nerdy theological note, if you look through this, God is the only person in the Genesis narrative who it never needs a complimentary pair because God is complete in and of himself. But here's my point. Why is there two genders? Because Adam needed a partner to be complete. Let me fill this out one more time for us. I'm going to go back to Genesis chapter 1 and just read chapter 1, verse 27 again. This is what the, the Bible says. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. Now listen to verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every living creature that moves on the ground. See, the fundamental thing that God is doing which makes humans different from everything else is that he makes them in his image. And how it gets described here is fundamental for us understanding what God means by that. Let's just go back quickly to verse 26. Then God said, let us, plural, make mankind in our, plural, image. What is like the fundamental, like the fundamental thing that we know from the Hebrew Bible? God is one. Like, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One God. But God is saying something here in the plural. We know from our Bible that God is three in one. One God, three persons. And that each of those persons is distinct. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet, they are one. And when they come together as a community of love, what happens? The three in one produce life. The Spirit is hovering over the water. John tells us that the word was with God in the beginning. All things were made for him. What do we see? God speaking his word and creation happens. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit come together as a community of love. And what do they produce? They produce life. So when God is saying here in verse 27, God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Singular, male and female, he created them. He is saying something. He's saying when two distinct realities come together and form one, they have the ability to reflect God as they produce life. And we can't actually do that without that reality. We cannot fulfill what God has called us to fulfill. What did God say? God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. You cannot be fruitful and multiply unless you have these distinct genders coming together and forming something unique in wholeness. What does that mean? It means this, this cannot happen in another form. You cannot produce what God has called us to produce with a man and a man or a woman and a woman. Now I know, again, as we hear this, this can sound um, very uh, counter to what our culture kind of says about gender, about sexuality. But I, I think as we look at this, it actually has uh, an invitation to just uh, to, to experience and enjoy the beauty of what God has said the beauty of recognizing that men and women are different and that's beautiful and that's beautiful because they are different. Because I as a guy can look at the unique things that my wife Shannon has and I can see that she has things that I don't have and they're necessary and they're beautiful and she can look at the things that, the way that God's made me and see the differences and say those are things that I don't have and it's beautiful. We uh, got to see a clip from a John Piper quote in the, the quote video at the beginning. I just want to uh, flesh that quote out a little bit, fill it out uh, by reading a few more uh, chunks of it. John Piper writes this, The distinction of genders, we might say, is, a is like a song you hear in another room, and you think, wow, that sounds beautiful. 
but I can only hear a little bit. So you start opening doors and rearranging furniture because you have to get in that room and you have to hear that song. And when you get in, you find the knobs and you turn them all to the right because you're like, I've got to hear more of that. What he's saying is when you start to see men and women work together, bringing their differences together, it's beautiful. Like, like when you see it come together in the way it's supposed to, it is a beautiful song and you want to hear more of that. We Christians believe, as the Bible shows us, that he created everything. And at the pinnacle of his creation was humankind. And two distinct genders, male and female, both men and women, were set apart from everything else in the world with the special dignity of bearing God's own image. Which means we image God in the world in a unique way as his special representatives. Christians believe that inherent to this purpose of joy in God is the fact that he made two different kinds of humans, one male and one female. And because these differences are not happenstance, but integral to his design, there is something about these differences that maximize our joy. Like music, the harmony of manhood and womanhood says that something more enjoyable happens when different parts work together as one. We see this most vividly in marriage. When Jesus said, uh, what Jesus said is a man and woman becoming one flesh. It means there is one song, but that it has two different parts. It means that a woman has one sound and a man has another. Neither sound is greater or even uh, or more important than the other. In fact, you must, uh, you must have both sounds to get the song. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. That song is part of the joy God created us to know. He made us to shine for him, to enjoy him, but sin messed that up distorting our sense of purpose and our relationship to God. And that's why Jesus came, to die for our sins, the sins of men and the sins of women, to conquer death for our sake and restore our relationship to God and the everlasting joy we were meant to experience in him, the joy we were meant to experience as men and women, created both equal in his image to play two different parts of one song. See, what the Bible offers us is a vision of humanity in which we recognize that men and women are made equal but different, distinct. But that's a good thing. Those differences are necessary for us to actually, as humans, fulfill the calling of God to bring his image to all of creation. And when we come together, we actually have the capacity to give a more full picture of what God is like. Uh, again, I want to draw out just a few implications for us. The first implication is this. I think as a church, when we overlook or minimize uh, the reality that God has created distinct genders, um, we actually don't do any favors to ourselves or to the culture around us. Meaning that we ignore God's picture for men and women at our own peril. And I recognize that there are probably a lot of reasons that, that good, well-meaning Christians enter into this uh, idea. Some of them are simply theological reasons. Uh, people are going to read the Bible, and they're going to read it in such a way that they see different things. Now, I think I've made a pretty clear case that the Bible is very clear on this issue. If you go back to Genesis, if you see the way that it gets talked about, it's always rooted in creation account. It's not saying this is an abstract cultural reality. It's saying this is the way that God created the world to function. But there are those who will disagree with that. 
Um, I think probably uh, a more important uh, reason is that um, some have wrestled with this because they have experienced distortions of what this looks like. Uh, there are those of you who are in this room and you have come out of relationships where you have had fathers or husbands or spiritual leaders in your church who have been domineering and abusive. And I don't want to minimize in any way the fact that your experience was real. And they have used the language of Paul's work, the idea of headship, to force and coerce you into things that were not helpful and not healthy and maybe at times even downright harmful. And so you're struggling with this picture. Uh, the first thing I just want to say is, as a man, as a husband, as a father, as a leader in our church, I want you to know that that picture that you experience is not God's picture of what a man looks like. And I'm sorry that that was your experience. I know apology from the stage is of little meaning to your experience, but I, I hope you know that I genuinely and deeply mourn that you have experienced such a distortion of what is a good gift from God. But I, I also want to implore you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Because something has been distorted or corrupted does not mean the original ideal is bad. In fact, you might be missing out on something that is truly beautiful, truly wonderful, because you have experienced distortion. And so I want to invite you into this conversation to experience some healing, to actually get a picture of what it looks like when men act in such a way that they reflect God's purpose for them, when women act in such a way that they reflect God's purpose for them. I think some people are motivated to ignore this idea because they recognize that this current cultural moment, it's just controversial, it's hard, and they, they want to remove barriers for people to come to Jesus. And, and I understand like, that impulse. I totally get it. You know, there's people who like, yeah, I'm not going to go to a church that is like talking about this stuff. But I think we do them a disservice when we sort of try and say, hey, you should follow Jesus, except for you don't have to listen to him in this one area of your life. Like, that is not actually helping people. Our call is to invite people to experience Jesus in all areas of life, to submit all areas of life to them. To do anything less is actually to distort the gospel. To say Jesus isn't Lord of everything. But here's the vast, probably the vast reality for most people is that we actually don't think about this question at all. We don't consider what the Bible has to say about this issue. And, and here's an interesting reality. When I do fast track, um, when I do fast track with people, we always start off by, by talking about the story of God. And it's really important. And, and I share this quote uh, from a, a guy named um, um, Michael Goheen. And, and he, in his book, he writes a book on the story of God, on how the Bible fits together as a unified whole. And at the beginning, in his introduction, he, he has this quote, and I'll just paraphrase it for you. He essentially says that we live in a world that is constantly bombarding us with stories. It's constantly bombarding us with stories about how the world is supposed to work, how life is supposed to work, what's important, what's not important. 
And if we don't regularly root ourselves in God's story, if we don't regularly find our meaning, purpose, and understanding of our identity here, then what's going to happen is we might go to the Bible and get a little bit of that and a little bit of this, but it's going to then be subsumed in some greater cultural story. And I think that's what's happened for many people, including pastors in many churches, is they don't think about this a little bit. And so what happens is rather than rooting themselves regularly in God's story, they allow other stories to shape their idea of what this is. And then they impose those pictures back onto the Bible rather than allowing the Bible to shape their picture of reality. And so there's an invitation for us. If you disagree with me, that is okay. But my challenge to you is actually go back into the Bible, read God's account of his creation, read how this gets played out from Genesis to Revelation, and tell me why you think this is wrong. Do your homework. Allow the Spirit to shape you. Submit yourself to Jesus. There's a second implication, and I think this is one that, um, that, that maybe will touch us in a, a little bit of a different way. The reality is, is that the idea of God's picture of male and female gender binary is currently under uh, a great deal of cultural attack. And you see, what's happened is, I think rightly, people have looked at some of the abuses of these differences, some of the ways that uh, men have used some of the ways that God has made them to dominate and at times abuse uh, women and those uh, under them uh, in different, like, different ways. Um, and, and they said that's not good because men and women are equal. And the Bible indeed says men and women are equally made in the image of God. That is true. But what's happened is we've actually distorted or traded in equality for the idea of equity. And equity is not the same thing as equality. You see, equality says men and women are equal but different. Equity says men and women have to be the same. What a man does, what a woman does, what a man is, what a woman is, there's no difference. And that is actually contrary to what the Bible teaches. And the reality is, if we believe what C.S. Lewis said is true, that God is the creator, that he knows how we are going to function to maximize our fruitfulness, to maximize our joy, to maximize our potential, the machine starts to break down when you don't use it as it should work. And we're seeing that. I don't have all the stats in front of me, but let me just say, if you do any amount of research, what you're going to see is there is a tremendous, a tremendous amount of negative ramifications, especially plaguing young men, but increasingly plaguing young women. We have a generation of men who are abandoning responsibility because they're told it's toxic masculinity. And as we have increasingly childish men, what do you think that produces in women? I mean, just, just give you some anecdotal kind of pictures. Uh, one of the, the things that has happened, uh, we've seen increasingly, is uh, as men uh, start to chicken out of building relationships, they become more and more self-focused, and this has continued to drive men towards pornography. But pornography in and of itself is a corrupting influence because what you have is men who are now looking at women as objects to satisfy their needs, but then it becomes something that you need more of and more of and more of to satisfy you, and that more is abuse. 
Now you have young girls who are getting drawn into pornography, and what do they see? They see abusive images of a way that men are treating women, and they say, if that's what a relationship looks like, I don't want to have anything to do with it. And then they enter puberty, and they start questioning some things because they're having all these changes, and what we're seeing now is an epidemic of young girls who are questioning their gender, and we as a society are just saying, go for it. And then you get pictures of people like Chloe Cole where you know, she gets uh, hormone blockers at age 12, takes testosterone at age 13, at age 15 gets a double mastectomy, at age 16 she starts reading a psychology textbook and realizes she wants to be a mom someday and she's just lost her ability to breastfeed. Like when we as a culture ignore the reality, people get hurt. And I, I don't want to, again, I'm not trying to throw political pot shots, but I do think there are real life ramifications for us as a culture, when we ignore the way that God has created us to live. But there's also this beautiful invitation for us as a church to be a countercultural community. That means that we get to look at our differences and celebrate that. We get to celebrate a woman being a woman and a man being a man. And that means that for me as a, a male church leader, and I recognize this, there's a lot of women in this room, that I, I don't get to kind of like lift myself up and say like being a dude is the best and the most important. That I actually need to work extra hard to make sure that we are constantly celebrating and lifting up the many ways that women as women are contributing and leading us in various areas in our church. And I will fully admit, there is work to be done in that department. And I want to invite you as the women in our church to continue to help us to do this better. So this brings me to our last question. So we've talked about gender, we've talked about why there is distinction, but what does it actually look like for a man to live into his calling to be a man in the biblical sense? Here I want to return to Ephesians chapter 5. <clears throat> Before I do, um, I just want to say this. Again, I, I've said this a lot, and I know I'm doing a lot of like, you know, trying to anticipate arguments. But I, I do want to just say this. I, I, I get that there are going to be objections even to the idea of defining manhood. And I get that people are looking at common definitions of manhood and they're saying, uh, that's toxic masculinity. And, and I, I wanna just share some sympathy to that. Because when I look at the way that manhood is portrayed in much of our culture, indeed it does actually seem very toxic to me. And I wanna just give you three pictures that I see kind of in our media culture. Uh, the first one is what I call the Homer Simpson picture. Uh, the Homer Simpson, right? The lazy dad comes home, drinks beer, watches TV, you know, kind of disattached from his family. When his kid gets, uh, you know, gets in trouble, he's like strangling Bart, like, you know, like the angry, spastic dad, lazy TV dad. If this is the picture of manhood, like, yeah, that's toxic. Run from that. The, the next one is, I think, uh, I, and I never watched this show, How I Met Your Mother, but I think there's a character named Barney. Um, <laughs> This is what I call the sex-crazed relationship-adverse man-whore. Maybe Joey if you watch Friends. Um, 
yeah, okay, so let's talk about this picture of manhood. You know, the, the virile guy who's out playing the field, he's conquesting a different woman every night. You know, he has no commitment to anything but himself. Ladies, I understand if you're like, if that's what a man is, I want nothing to do with it. That is toxic. And the final picture of, of a man I'll, I'll talk about is what I call the Harvey Weinstein. This is the power-hungry, abusive conquistador, the man who is going to build his empire and take what he wants when he wants. And if that is your experience of what a man is, indeed, I will tell you, you are correct. That is toxic, and you should run from that. But that's not the picture we get of manhood in the Bible. See what Paul writes. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit to your husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So how does Jesus manifest his manhood? What does that look like? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and did what? Gave himself up for her. Gave himself up for her. When Paul is writing here, he's saying, husbands, you want to know what it looks like to be a husband? Husbands, you want to know what it looks like to be a biblical man? Look at Jesus. Our picture of what a biblical man is, is Jesus. The one who gives himself up for his bride. Now, Paul says a bunch of things here. And they, are, of course, are, are particularly um, particularly important for the understanding of how a husband relates to his wife, but I think they actually speak also to what it means to be a biblical manhood, uh, to biblical manhood. First thing he says is, um, he talks about the husband being the head uh, as Christ is the head of the church. Now, I, I get, like, the hot language is, is iffy. And, uh, you know, women, if you're getting your torches and pitchforks and getting ready to lead me out and throw rocks at me, I get it. <laughs> If it was the opposite, I'd probably be in the same place. But I want us to understand what, what Paul's actually saying here. See, that, that word head, it, it actually has a couple of important meanings for us. The first is that the, the original etymological, like the beginning of the word, where it stems from, is the term for source, meaning like the source of a river. So you go up to like somewhere in the Rockies, you're going to see some beautiful lakes. Those lakes all feed rivers that flow downwards. And so part of it is just recognizing that the church comes from Jesus. Like Jesus is the initiator. He's the starter. And even we see this uh, idea of initiation in how the Bible talks about how a man is to pursue a woman. For this reason, a man will leave. He will go out from his father and mother and be united with his wife. So there's something here in which the, the Bible is telling us that, that the way that God has created men in his that there's something that, that initiates, that goes out from. Interestingly, I was reading um, uh, The Meaning of Marriage, <laughs> actually. Uh, Kathy Keller, uh, Tim Keller's wife, um, she talks about this. 
this reality. And she cited the work of Carol Gilligan, who's a feminist scholar, but Gilligan was doing a study on the differences between men and women. And she says this, Gilligan argued that while men seek maturing by detaching themselves, women see themselves maturing as they attach. I want to say that again. Gilligan argued that while men seek maturity by detaching themselves, women see themselves maturing as they attach. What Kathy was getting at, what she was citing uh, in, in Gilligan's research, is that men in particular, in the way that they relate to the world, tends to be a go-out like, I'm going to go out, I'm going to build something, I'm going to go out there. And women in general, this is a generalization I recognize, not, it's not going to necessarily be true of every woman in the same way and every man in the same way, but women tend to build their identity by attaching. Now, again, this doesn't say anything about your job, anything about your roles in the household. This simply says this is how you're typically going to relate to the world around you. But if we continue to look at the evidence, what we see is that our biological and physical realities tend to mimic these things. Men tend to be physiologically, and we can even see this in kind of the sexual sense, kind of go out, go out there. Uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> But, uh, but also in a psychological sense, in general, psychologists will recognize that men tend to be, uh, have particular psychological traits, including like ambition, the desire to build things, the desire to initiate things. That's actually a good thing. That's not a bad thing. So there is a sense in which God is saying, men, your job is to go out and be initiators, to be builders to be risk takers. And in the context of marriage, I believe also protectors and providers. Now, again, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that no woman should work. I'd be a hypocrite. My wife works. She's a phenomenal nurse. Uh, if she was working full time, she'd be making way more money than me. Um, that is, I'm very happy. We live in like a very expensive city. I'm so happy that my wife works. Um, and that doesn't mean that Women should be the ones who are at home making babies and sandwiches. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, at home, I make a lot of sandwiches, and I contribute to the baby making. So, <laughs> But what it is saying is that men in general are to be people who are leading the charge and in initiation, going after it, building up the family, thinking through what it actually looks like to build this thing up. And, and I, I, want, I know that's, that's a little general, so let me kind of nuance that. So there, there's the initiation side of it, but there's also a leadership side of it. There is, in fact, a leadership side of it. The, the Christ leads the church. He directs the church. He guides the church. Now, this isn't me saying that men are always the boss in every situation. That, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that there's a particular responsibility on men to lead the charge by laying down their life to pursue the things that God has for us. Now, let me just go through this again so I can help you understand this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and did what? Gave himself up for her to do what? To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and pre to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain, wrinkle, or blemish, but holy and blameless. What is 
Jesus saying here about the relationship of husbands to wives? A husband is to look like Jesus. A man is to look like Jesus, which means he sacrifices himself so that his wife in the context of marriage can look more and more like Jesus. And I'm going to get a bit on a soapbox here because I have spent so much time this month agonizing about men who are so interested in using their God-given ambition to build their own empires at the expense of the people around them. And I want to speak to you men in the room, as a husband, as a father, as a man. God has something here for you. Do not ignore it. If you are sitting at home trying to build your kingdom, thinking that the family is there to serve your needs, as I sometimes am in the habit of doing, Jesus is calling you to repent. He's calling you to repent. He's calling you to say, you've been thinking about yourself, but I've called you to think about everyone else. I've called you to come home and die to yourself once more. I've called you to start thinking about what you're going to build in my kingdom, not how you're going to build your kingdom. I've called you to lead your family towards me. Guys, we, we have to stop making excuses. Ambition is good, but it is easily corruptible. Like you can go out there and build an awesome business, and it's all about you. You can be the leader of your family and be a tyrant and look nothing like a biblical picture of a man. Because a biblical picture of a man is Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Let me read it one more time, just in case we forget. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and did what? Gave himself up for her. Are you giving yourself up for the people around you? For your wives, for your kids, for your workers, for your communities? Or are you sitting at home on your butt and playing video games all day? It's a serious question. Is your life about you? Because God has something so vastly better than that, and he actually wants to use you. But we are living in an epidemic of men who just want to be boys. They don't want wives. They want moms. They want a mom who's going to I'm going to come home for work. She's going to fold my laundry. She's going to make me supper. I get to go on the couch and play video games and drink beer. It's awesome. What God is calling you to is to be someone who lays down your life and chases after Jesus with all your heart and brings your family along with you. Who says, I'm going to die to myself every day so that my wife and my kids and my community and my church and my city and my country can be made pure, blameless, spotless. Present, present, to be presented without blemish, wrinkle, or stain. So what then is a biblical picture of a man? Let me give you this definition. A biblical picture of a man is one who sacrificially leads the charge in pursuing Jesus 
and sacrificially demonstrates the love of Jesus to those around him. If you want to know how to be a true man, look at the character of Jesus. Was he ambitious? Yes. Man, Jesus was so ambitious. He went around bringing the kingdom of God to wherever he went. He told his disciples, I am going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. But he wasn't ambitious for his own kingdom. He was ambitious for his father's kingdom. And how did he bring about that kingdom? The cross. He died to himself. He laid down his life. He didn't lord over people, but he was the true lord of people. I'm going to invite the band to come up. As I I close off here, I want to just leave you with one last set of implications. I want to leave you with uh, four four kind of realms of implications. So I want to talk, first of all, to marriages. I know I just ranted a bit there, and I I apologize if that was, like, hard. Um, I'll be honest, it's just been a a tough season. I've watched... um, in several aspects of my relationships, dudes who have just completely walked away from this calling. And it is devastating to their families, it is devastating to their kids, to their spouses, and it is heartbreaking for me to watch. And I just want to say, for those of you who are in marriages, the calling is to love your wife as Christ loved the church. To give yourself up for her so that she can be presented to Jesus blameless. What does that mean? It means that you need to be continually searching after how to create margin in your life and her life for you to be with Jesus, both together and as individuals that you need to be modeling, calling after, chasing after Jesus in every aspect of your life. You know, I think oftentimes for for those of us with young kids, it's hard for our wives. You know, I can't do some of the things that my wife can do, uh, like breastfeeding. Um, And so she's often up at night and hanging out with our baby. And I can get up early in the morning and read my Bible. She doesn't have that chance. And so one of the questions I'm wrestling through with is like, how do I help create space for my wife to be with Jesus? It might cost me something. That's a question worth asking because my goal is to see her presented as spotless and blameless. And those are the kinds of questions, husbands, you should be asking yourselves. How do I lead the charge in pursuing Jesus? If you're not doing that, Start. Ask the question, how do we do this better as a family? How do I start being intentional? And yes, there's an affection piece to this. Constantly be asking, how do I serve? How do I die to myself and my own desires so that I can lift up my wife? The second implication I want to speak to is those for single men who at some point want to be married. I want to say a couple things. First of all, Um, I want to encourage you to continue to be ambitious, but not for your kingdom, but for Jesus. And in particular, if you want to be married, I want to invite you to start asking the question, how do I prepare my heart now so that I can be someone who can lay down my life like Jesus for my family in the future? 
Start working on your character. Go to the ladies in your life, your mom, your sisters, your, your female friends and say, hey, uh, if you were married to me, what would be the things that would drive you nuts? And start working on those things. Start thinking about like, what would be a way that I could serve my wife? If you're like a leave your clothes on the floor, don't do your own laundry, don't know how to cook kind of guy, I'm gonna I'm tell you from someone who's married, work on those things. Your wife's not gonna like that. But in a real sense, the best thing you can do is continue to cultivate a heart that chases after Jesus, to be ambitious for his kingdom. If you are able to enter into your relationship where you can be strong in chasing after Jesus, your wife will flourish. I wanna say one more thing. Uh, I think there's been uh, a cowardice that has entered into uh, the church in a lot of ways with Christian men. I know is true of my life and many people that I bore witness to. Uh, there's a, um, a hurt that can come when you put yourself on the line and asking someone out. And uh, so guys have, have chickened out from being initiators or they, they do it in like a really pansy way, like I'm gonna text her on Instagram or something like that, okay? I just wanna say this really, really briefly. Um, God's made you to put yourself on the line. Like think about Jesus, he initiated, he came after us. He put himself on the line for us. That's a very simple way that you can start developing your character to look like Jesus. If you like a girl, look like Jesus, go put yourself on the line. Don't expect her to do it, ask her out. All right, for parents seeking to help their sons step into biblical manhood, I, I'm still learning this myself. I'm not a fountain of wisdom in this area yet, but I, I do think I wanna just say a couple of things. Number one, this is, this is something that's gonna take work and you need to plan for it. We live in a world that's constantly giving men a message that the things that are naturally innate to them are bad. So how do we actually help them understand what those things look like in a way that's not going to be corrupted, in a way that's not going to be um, bad and negative. So help your sons continue to develop their adventure spirit, their desire to be initiators, their, their sense of, of um, ambition, but in a way that actually helps them see how they can build something that brings glory to Jesus. Make a plan. There's some phenomenal books out there. Uh, I think there's one called How to Raise a Modern Knight, which I heard is really good. Another one by John Tyson on Raising Boys, which I've heard is phenomenal. But, but here's the thing. Don't just leave it to happenstance. Fathers, model for your sons what it looks like to be a sacrificial leader in the way that you love your wife and the way that you love him and you love your daughters if you have daughters. And finally, for men who are not married and perhaps might not be married for various reasons, maybe you've been divorced, uh, maybe you just don't ever feel like marriage is something that you're called to, maybe uh, there are those of you who are struggling with same-sex attraction and you know that marriage is probably not viable for you I don't want you to hear what we've said today and think that you need to be married to be a complete human or a complete man or even to be someone who can image God. In each of these ways, you can still continue to live out your holy ambition and build Jesus' kingdom. His spirit still lives in you. You're still part of a church in which there are women to continue to compliment what you're doing. And we see great examples of this. The apostle Paul, Jesus himself is a single guy. So don't lose heart. Jesus has much for you as you continue to express what it looks like to be a man. I'm gonna close this in prayer and then invite the band to finish this off here.
Heavenly Father, I know there's so much more that we could say about these things. There's so much nuance that needs to come into this conversation. So I just pray and ask that you would give us wisdom as a church. But Father, I do pray and ask that you would continue to help us as men, those of us who are men, to live in such a way that we reflect you, that we would be willing to die for ourselves out of a deep sense of love for the places that you put us, the people that you've uh, put in, in our lives, so that we can indeed see the places around us, the people around us come to flourish in the way that you've called them to. I ask this in your name. Amen.